Hi, everyone. My name is Evan Lowenstein. I'm the founder and CEO of Stageit, and uh, I'm going to be moderating this panel. Everyone up here today, in their own way, is using live video to, uh, to push the envelope to bring fans closer to artists, and I'm going to give them an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves and play a short video. Hence the Let's reason. Let's face it. No matter how many times you play your favorite record, album, CD, playlist, it simply won't get you any closer. Is that what you want? Hence the reason we call it from, uh, from the concert to the couch. Would you like to start? I'm just going to show a video. I'm going to start it up so you guys can see what we're doing. So yeah, my name is Brett, CEO of SwitchCam. And SwitchCam allows any artist to turn their fans into a camera crew. So the idea is that you schedule an event ahead of time and then you invite your fans to join your camera crew. And the, and the page looks a little bit like this. So they can join the camera crew and they can download the app or they can just follow along from home so they get notified when new content comes up. And as people join the camera crew, they're also sharing on their social networks. So you start to build buzz before the show. During the show, we've got a live photo stream that comes from people who are using our app. And you can see that coming up live. And then when people get home, they can then upload their videos. Now that's when the magic really happens with SwitchCam. And we put all the videos together into this interactive video player, which I'm going to show you now. So, so they're all synced and we're switching between different camera angles and really getting a feeling for what it's like all around the venue from people in the crowd. On the left you've got your set list so you can navigate it. Now we've done this with plenty of brands and, uh, brands and other artists and we've found that we get a lot more sharing, almost 10x the normal sharing for, for video content and people watch twice as long. So this is why we would do it. So that's, that's SwitchCam and uh, we're really turning people's fans into camera crews. Thank you so much. Jack, you wanna? Here we go. Hi everybody, so my name's Jack Conti. I'm in a uh, band called Pomplamoose. And instead of talking a lot about what I do, I'll just show you a, a video here. This is with my girlfriend, Natalie. It's the two of us. And we play instruments and record it in our studio and then put it on YouTube. That's sort of, I guess, recorded video. Live, we've done Ustream and uh, Justin TV, and then most recently, Stage It, which is really great too. So anyway, here's, here's our band. Here's what we do. I'll only play a minute of this here. All the single ladies, 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 all the single ladies. Watch your hands up, 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 up in the club. I just broke up, doing my own little thing. Side to dip, and now you want to trip, cause I know you can't notice me. I'm up on him, he's up on me, don't pay him any attention. Grab my tears, three good years, can't be mad at me. If you like it, then you should put a ring on it If you like it, then you should put a ring on it Don't be mad once you see that he wants it If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it Alright, there you have it, that's Pomplamoose Fantastic So original, so cool Okay, Brian, you want to come up? Brian Gruber, Shogo TV What we do is we provide turnkey production solutions, automated remote control solutions for iconic venues around the world. We're in four countries, just installed two clubs in Brazil, and just rolled out our HTML5 app where you can touch any part of the iPad screen, touch any musician, and get a close-up to that musician. Tonight there's a show at Yoshi's, and looking forward to that. We stream out of Yoshi's. We'll also be streaming live from a club, Jasnos Fundos, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The basic model is a revenue share with venues and artists. It's free now. We plan to be in 100 clubs next year with 1,000 HD concerts per month, five to 10 choices every primetime hour, and um, uh, plan to roll that out sometime in April. Fantastic. Dana from a little company called YouTube. I believe we have exclusive footage, right? Is this something new you're showing us? Exclusive clip. Hi, I'm Dana Vetter. I work at YouTube. I focus on music marketing programs. Um, what that means for you guys is lots of live streams, partnerships with, in the past 24 months, Coachella Live. You can watch Austin City Limits Live this weekend on YouTube. Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, Jazz Fest, um, a series called Unstaged with American Express. Um, which features live musicians um, directed by legendary um, filmmakers. So a handful, that's a handful of the projects that I've worked on, but here is a quick snapshot of some highlights from Bonnaroo this summer on YouTube. Hello, Sunny! I see you 
on the computer. Sonny's watching at home on the YouTube. Just a snapshot. Thank you so much. I'm going to play one little thing of my own. So I'm the founder and CEO of Stage It. We enable artists like Jack and his band Pomplamoose to take millions of views on YouTube and turn that into thousands of dollars on our service, put money in their pocket. This is um, country superstar Jake Owen talking about Stage It after his first time using it, and I swear to you, we did not pay for this, but it certainly sounds like we did, so I promise you didn't. I, I was just telling someone, that this is only the second interview I've done today, but I did this thing last night on uh, stageit.com. I don't know if you've ever checked this out. You should totally check oh, wait, it out. Wait, didn't you do, I, I follow you on Twitter, didn't you do a thing in your kitchen? Yeah, you guys won't, I, I you won't believe I this. I didn't watch like, the Stage It, but. I've come to realize, and I hate to say this, but like I don't tell my label a lot of stuff that I'm going to do because I feel like they'll, they'll start going, oh, I don't know if you should do that or not. I don't know. But so I just did it. And I, I signed up by myself in my kitchen for the stage it thing, applied to play a show. And then what people do is you can sell tickets online for people to watch you online. It's kind of like what we're doing right now, this virtual thing. And so I just said, like, pay what you want. Some people paid 50 cents. Some people paid 10 cents. Some people paid, like, 10 bucks. <laughs> But then they can tip you to play songs. So last night I sat in my kitchen and I said, whatever you guys pay to watch me play and, and tip me, I'll take all that money and I'll give it to my charity, St. Jude, we were just talking about. And uh, I raised over $1,000 sitting in my kitchen last night playing acoustic guitar. I do that every night. Serious? My web guy called him yesterday. I was like, hey, dude, I think I'm going to do this. And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. We should plan it out. I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, like, I'm going to do it tonight. And uh, so I literally wow. put a Twitter up, like, I don't know, six or seven hours before I did it. I, I put 200 tickets up for sale. They sold out like that. And uh, over a thousand bucks. I mean, that just modern technology that's and awesome. the fact that people have good hearts and they'll do that. I think that's pretty cool. All right. So whether we're um, streaming live events or we're streaming from uh, venues or we're turning our, our fans into cameramen or we're utilizing new technologies to get closer to our fans, everybody up here is, as, as I mentioned before, really leading the way, uh, leading the charge and, and bringing people closer from the, uh, from the concert to the couch. But... Is that necessarily a good thing? I wanted to ask our panelists if you guys, uh, anyone has a fear that, um, that streaming live concerts could actually hurt actual ticket sales. Anybody wants to? Artists are in control of what the parameters are for what, what they're doing. It's unlikely. Ultimately, you're building your brand, you're, you're building a relationship, a closer relationship with your fan in new and numerous ways. So there may be an individual instance where someone will watch a live stream and not go to the show, but it's pretty unlikely someone will tell their date, we're going to watch it in, in the kitchen on a laptop instead of going out to a show. So mostly, I think, it simply expands opportunities and flexibility for artists. But if you live in a different city, um, isn't it possible that you'd say, I can't make it to Yoshi's or I can't make it to Lollapalooza, so I will get with my girlfriend and we'll watch it from our home? Isn't that sort of... I think probably 90 to 99% of the examples would be if you see Jack perform in another city and were trans was transfixed by his music and he's coming to your city and you have an opportunity to engage with him and to see him live, then much higher propensity for you to go and see that show as opposed to if you didn't have that, that digital experience. And Jack, is that what you feel sort of if people are streaming your concerts live? Uh, uh, yeah, well... I. We were talking about this uh, a little bit earlier. It feels, feels like there are two different categories. To me, uh, Stage It doesn't feel like um, a live concert at all to me. It feels like uh, the way I think of Stage It is, okay, here's the traditional music pie, and there's publishing, and there's merch, and there's live, and uh, there's mechanical sales. And, and Stage It kind of goes like this, and you get a new slice of pie, and that's Stage It income, and it's a different thing. It's its own thing. 
um, and it's made the pie for musicians a little bit bigger. And so I don't feel like it's intruding on anything else because when someone sees him in his kitchen playing his song, the, the analogy I like to use, it's like seeing the storyboard of a movie, but you still want to see the movie. Sure. Um, you still want to see the explosions and the action, the high production value and the lights and you want to get sweaty and be with your friends in the front row. I mean, that's just a completely different, uh, that's a completely different thing than seeing someone play in their kitchen. So, um, I, yeah, I think there's two different sort of categories of, of live streaming there that, that need to be defined. It's also worth pointing out that the top, I think, 100 concerts every year make up like 50% of the revenue. So what you've got here is a chance so to... the top, what is that? The top 100 uh, tours every year make up about 50% of the revenue for the okay. entire business. And so you've got this heavily skewed business that goes in one way, and I think that's actually more of a marketing problem than anything else. So having, because getting someone to a show, is, it's expensive, average ticket prices are like 100 bucks, you have to convince your friends to go with you, it's so much easier to have a, a live stream or for there to already be something there that's $5 or $1 or free and ad supported. And then I think that just grows the pie, it gives people an opportunity to see what it's like to go to a live show, and then actually potentially go next time and spend the 100 bucks. Well, let me ask you guys a question. I remember, gosh, it must have been in maybe 1995 when email, we started, everyone started, started using email. And I remember my mom saying something to me, the effect of, you know, there goes the written word and we're losing out on that and you kids just won't understand the art of writing a letter, you know? And then I recall, maybe, I mean, the last couple of years, people now have best friends that they've never met in person, right? Through <laughs> social media, right? I mean, this is a real thing. People have best friends. Um, and then they sort of meet up and stuff. Is, is, is it possible that live streaming could ultimately replace physical touring in general? Is that possible? No way. No, no way. way. Never. Just gotta ask the question, guys. No way. It's, it's, I mean, Come it, on, Evan. My so job's to ask experience. questions. I think every time a new, a new medium comes out that's somewhat like an updated version of an old medium, people get scared. Um, but Just like people, email with my mom. Uh, like email with your mom or like VHS tapes or the record, you know, the first time that sound was recorded. But the truth of the matter is people have been congregating in theaters for thousands and thousands of years. That's a medium that has standed the test of time and it will continue to stand the test of time. So, so I'm yeah. going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Yeah. I, I think maybe we just lack imagination. I mean, if you think about... Um, I can't imagine not wanting to go to a concert and being with people and dancing. But at the same time, you know, some people couldn't imagine why you'd need more than 64 kilobits of RAM 100 years ago. You know, and now this has like hundreds of times of that amount. So I think maybe in 100 years we've got the Matrix and it feels just like everything else and, and you want to go and you dance just like, you know, have, I don't know if you saw... That's a Matrix. great point though, right? Maybe, maybe in 100 years there will be a way that we can be with people and feel like we're with people without being that way. And we can but all live now, by ourselves. Yeah, but for now, I, 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 I agree with these guys. Not, yeah. not the immediate term. No. Right, right now, one in three young adults goes to see a show live once a month. So th that's a huge number, right? One in three, according to Nielsen a few weeks ago. And then 88% of people, want of those young adults, of music lovers, watch live performances online. So I think that, that the first statistic proves that people are going to live shows. It's not really going anywhere for the time being, but live performances online and that digital access is important to people to, you know, to understand their favorite artists, to discover new artists, and, and they need more than just the official track. And, and they want to, you know, experience that, that live performance online. So I think, you know, I think we're all here saying the same trend, but yeah. we're seeing it by behaviors online. Are there particular artists or uh, different genres that do particularly well on the stream, live streaming? Some better than others, or you see it's across the board, especially with YouTube and... Yeah, I think um, a lot of it is correlated to the artist's fan base, of course. Um, sure. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't classify specific genres. Um, we have in the past year seen um, a lot of EDM artists you know, trying it out on the site and, and doing really well, but I think a lot of that has, has to do with their footprint. I think the bigger thing in terms of um, success is how the artists are embracing it, um, what kind of promotion they're putting um, behind it. Are they embracing kind of interactivity at another level. So, you know, for example, when we had a stream with Coldplay in Madrid, you know, they put out, um, you know, on blast all their fans around the globe to participate, to create, um, you know, to create butterflies that were gonna be part of this, part of the set. And so when you're engaging people like that, I think you just, you know, see the numbers multiply. Um, and I think the same goes though for, 
uses off of YouTube. So, you know, you have artists like Daria Musk on Google Plus who, sure. you know, they're using the you, they're using the platform in a creative way to get an audience. So I think it's less about genre and more about what the artist is is doing. Jack. It also, I think, has to do with with the kind of artists more than the genre, because um, I think one thing that YouTube spawned that is particularly interesting is a new kind of musician that didn't used to have a voice. Um, and that's, I mean, it kind of nerdy, maybe a little bit shy, but not the, all right, San Francisco, let's rock. You know, it's not that person. It's, hey guys, I'm gonna play some songs and I hope you like them. And like suddenly this person gets to play music for people. <laughs> and that didn't used to exist years ago. I mean, you had to be this bigger, larger than life rock star and YouTube favors this honesty and this, this transparency and, and the brands and the people that do really well on YouTube are real people who are talking to you and who care about you and interact with you. And that's like the opposite of the rock star, which is fuck you, you know, that, that's like the, that's the, the well, other they're still mentality. talking to you if they're right. saying fuck, I'm kidding, well, and it's, I'm kidding. It's funny, you know, that, that clip that I played of Flea up there at Bonnaroo saying hi to his daughter on YouTube, that turns into people all over Facebook and Twitter saying, oh my gosh, he just said, you know, he's talking to her. Right. So it's, it's finding that honesty, I think. Yeah. So rock stars can do it too, it's just. Brian, what kind of Different. venues are you guys going after? Yeah, the, the clubs that we do are small by nature. They're two to 600. A lot of it is jazz, but a lot of it, like Yoshi San Francisco, is a jazz club with 50% of their shows being not jazz. So to us, it's about an intimate experience where, where it's, it's not that kind of big stage experience. And, and so high level of musicality and musicianship and, and a, a unique way to see what each musician is doing. So mm -hmm. across multiple genres now, but we've been working initially with a lot of jazz clubs and now increasingly a, a number of genres. Now, when I was an artist, um, Brett, I'm going to ask you about this. When I was an artist, I remember I've been playing, um, I started in 1993, I remember uh, there was a lot of lighters. Um, and now I remember the transition into cell phones. Um, is there a particular genre that you guys are seeing of people videotaping? Is it stronger in any market or is it a little too soon to tell? A different genres of fans or is everyone these days just everyone's got a cell phone well i think it's a, it, yeah it's less about the genres i think it's more about where the artists are at in terms of their life cycle like there's a point where you know before they really break out where there's a lot of video because people are the reason people take video at shows is not because they want to pirate or anything or they want to sell it on the side of the street it's because they want to show their friends how amazing this show is so you get when, when a band is not yet broken and, and they start to bubble up, you see this massive video because people are showing what's going on at these concerts and, and using it to, to say, hey, you should have been there or come to the next show. Um, so, uh, for example, Foster the People, before Pumped Up Kicks got really big, we started to see big volumes of, of videos from their shows. And it actually, the two singles they released were the ones that had the most videos before they released the singles. And so... People are doing that and then now they're kind of in this sort of phase where they are what they are and there's a certain amount of video and then when you hit Coldplay status or U2 status and you have these light shows and, and massive stage setups, that's when you see um, significant, you know, another level of, of video volume. So I think it depends a lot on where they are in that stage. Sure. Jack, I want to ask you a question. Um, Brett's got a company where the fans are shooting video. Does it bother you as an artist? Um, that people are choosing to experience your music differently by sharing everything that's going on with their friends and they're sort of head down or tweeting about it and not enjoying in the moment. I know there's two schools of thought there. What, what side of that yeah. are you on? Well, I, yeah, I, which side are you on? <laughs> I'm on no, maybe both. I don't, I just, or, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I take a side, which is, you know, however you want to enjoy my music, I'm, I'm happy that you're enjoying my music. Great. Um, I, don't, I don't really care how you enjoy it, um, but I do know a lot of musicians Actually, most of them are older, who who sort of feel like, no, you you have to focus on this, or this is, you know, I, I don't want any pictures to be associated with my music. I just want the music, or I don't want the music playing in the background. I want it, you know, on headphones. Or, but no, however however you want to do it, it's fine with me. Um, this is a question for the other folks. What what's the biggest mistake that you know technology platform developers make, or what companies when they're sort of starting out um, and trying to make inroads in the music business? I mean, you guys are sort of going out there right now, there's some rights issues, uh, maybe in particular with you guys, um, the artists might feel uncomfortable, uh, vulnerable to people videotaping. What, what do you guys have to? Um, well, from, from our perspective, you know, we do hear some artists um, ask us to, I mean, our video is hosted, um, well, traditionally has been hosted mostly on YouTube. So, you know, that's 
a complicated little area. But um, licensing aside, people sometimes don't like the fans taking the storytelling into their own hands. And that's basically what Jack was saying, is they don't like the, you know, they feel like they want to be the ones telling the story. I'm writing the book, you're not writing the book. Right. And I think what we're seeing now is um, there's this shift where we currently are used to participating much more than you traditionally used. You never used to talk back to your television, you know, and then, then you know, the telephone and all the other innovations that, um, like Twitter and stuff, are now, people are talking to the television and, and tweets are being read back on CNN. And so we are now used to collaborating in that process, uh, at, at least this generation is. So I think that that, that eventually will, will have to die. You have no idea how helpful your company is to uh, my company because we would approach artists all the time uh, in the beginning and talk to them about streaming live on the internet and they would ask questions like, well, how, how can we stop people from screencasting or videotaping with an iPhone? And we would say, how do you stop them in the live world, in the real world? And we've evolved enough where there's a company like you guys out there that actually enables the fans to do that. Um, and that's sort of, we're seeing that there's a, like evolving People are getting, artists are getting more and more comfortable with it. Yeah. Well, there's a proper, there's, I mean, the, the basic trend is you've gone from video cameras we used to lug around on our shoulders to things that are sort of in this phone that we carry around with us. And then now next year, you know, you've got Google Glasses and all sure. these other wearable cameras. So it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's a losing strategy to try and fight that. Um, you have to figure out a way to incorporate it if you want to turn it into something that... Try telling that to the music industry. <laughs> well, we are. And it's, you know, we're getting something. No, I'm saying of, of, uh, trying to find a way to work with it as opposed to against it. Right. Um, let me ask you, um, but in terms of rights, like, is there any issues with the rights with the archiving? And same goes to you, Brian. I mean, do you guys have... So, well, our... Yeah, it's quite simple really. Our model is to work directly with the artist. So if they have the rights or they can clear the rights, then they can use the videos and publish them where they want. If they, you know, one of the new unique things about what we do is we give you the opportunity to cut out pieces. So let's say you perform a cover of Blackbird in the middle of your set, um, you don't have the rights to that, you don't want to pay for it. So you cut that video out and because you're a part of the publishing workflow with those fan videos, you choose the good ones, you kick out the bad ones and you cut out the songs you don't have the rights to. Got it. So it's, it, you know, it's basically whatever you want to make of it. And if you want to take the chance and put the Blackbird video up and see if Paul McCartney comes after you, then that's, that's up to you. So that's, how, that's basically our approach to rights. How about you, Brian? I think it's uh, for us about a lot of choice. Therefore, if we're streaming uh, a, a high volume of uh, shows, you can do it live and that's enough. So I think about 20% of the artists we work with are in control of their publishing and over the course of time as we work with labels and publishers, then we, we push that percentage to 50% or so. But our starting point is we have to deliver a great experience so that every time you pick up your iPad 8.30 at night, you have tremendous choice and a satisfying experience. To do that, if it's live only, we can exist on live only with just uh, working with, with PROs. Over the course of time, we wanna have some percentage of our, our, our shows on demand. And what we've been experimenting with is for those artists who give us approval, uh, we'll send one of our production people out uh, to do some backstage interviews and to s take some shots of the rehearsal. So we'll take a five or 10 minute clip put that on YouTube, promoting what happened, promoting the event and the, and the venue, and uh, still be uh, rights cleared because there are songs that that artist has cleared for us. One other thing, the way that we work is we contract with the venues, then we work with the venues to make this available to the artist. It's never for, forced on the artist, but one out of every three say uh, yes, so they opt into it, and then from there we have live rights. Jack or Dana, I mean, who out there have you guys seen that is uh, merging traditional methods with new technologies? Who's done it right, and what can we learn from them? Anything? Anyone? Uh, well, one example that I can think of that just comes to mind, uh, well, maybe this isn't so much about streaming, <laughs> although this is an interesting, interesting example. Uh, Ellie Golding, who uh, just had a pretty big hit single recently, sure. uh, made her most recent music video that's posted on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, uh, by uh, asking her fans to send in Instagram pictures of that that represented the lyrics in her video, and, and then yeah, she crazy. and then she basically edited together a string of a thousand Instagram pictures to uh, and it's the to be her good. music video. Yeah, yeah, and and it's good, and it's the even better thing about it is it's free. It's free. <laughs> um, so a video that the label might have spent two hundred fifty thousand bucks on or three hundred thousand bucks is now. Nothing yeah. and is a huge media, you know, PR smashing success. It's funny because um, Ellie Goulding, this is not the Ellie Goulding show, but last night um, 
she took a traditional um, angle of, a, of a, an album signing. So, you know, where people usually wait in a long line to have, you know, 40 seconds or 20 seconds with their favorite star. Um, she took it online last night. And so she was in London and did a digital album signing um, on Google Plus. And so basically, individuals queued up in a, in a digital line and then they had time with her live on a hangout and she would sign a digital album for them that then got, got sent to the people all over the world. So Brazil and you know, the United States and Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's a great video, it's online, the, the archive is. And so it's funny that you bring her up because I think you know, it's another good example of merging this really classic old idea of, of an album signing or a book signing or getting an autograph right. and bringing it um, online. So, so I, think, I think that and, and I also think the other Another example is just what a lot of these events have done, like the large-scale festivals that have been around, right? Last year, I think, was the 25th anniversary of Lollapalooza. And they're embracing this online, you know, the digital webcasting, which is just building their brand and giving more access to the artists who are playing there. So I would, I would say that events-wise, I think the festivals are doing a really good job at understanding where digital fits in their world. And then I, I do think Ellie Goulding is a good example, too, of, of what she did last night in the Instagram thing. Question for you. How long did she spend with each fan? Um, it was about, like, 45 seconds or so. She had, like, a little bit of banter, and then she signed, She took their name and signed a little message to them. I think mm -hmm. it was 45 seconds to a minute, but the whole, the whole video is 40, 50 minutes. So I think at one point, you know, I think that there were tens of thousands of people who watched. Right. Um, and I don't remember how many people got the signature, but right. I think it was about a minute or so. Yeah. And people were happy, so. Cool. And I mean, I think she's, you know, if you watch the video, she's kind and appreciative and, and calm, and so I think it's a good example of an artist doing something that works for her personality. Mm -hmm. I'm also really interested in, in your experience, I mean, from Stage's perspective. Um, what kind of artists work really well like with, with, with your platform and, and a really, because it's, it's an old idea, right? You yeah. tip the piano man some money, he plays the songs you want. Sure. More money you tip, the more likely he'll play. I think we're seeing a lot of, um, exactly, I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, by not archiving the experience, we bring it back to a time before there was, uh, um, before recorded music was around. And so the only way to ex enjoy a music experience was live. So we're finding that artists that can actually pull off their show live is more genre, less genre based and more about um, what sort of artists can, uh, can pull it off. And, and uh, so, but a lot of times it also- So Britney Spears really, might struggle. I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but I, I think that you're also seeing, um, you know, sometimes it's easier when you have one or two, you know, artists in the group or whatever, they can get together, it's easier right. for them to put together. Um, although we have had Ozo Motley, which has 11 piece in front of their laptop, huddled around, it was really? kind of cool. Yeah, That's awesome. it was great. So, um, Jack, I want to ask you a question with uh, over uh, 83 million views on YouTube. You guys are one of the most creative bands out there. Is there a lot of pressure to sort of keep up that sort of deal? Uh, you know, you got to get millions of views. I overheard you and Dana talking about, like, is a million views that big of a deal anymore? Oh, or is it not enough? Or what um, is well, okay, so yes, there is a tremendous yeah, amount of pressure. Yeah. Um, and that's a really hard thing artistically, because when we were making those videos, we had no fans. Sure. And we were just in our bedroom, and let's make a video today. And we made some videos. And it's not that we weren't trying. We did want to make something that sounded good. Um, but uh, there's a freedom to just be whatever you want. And, and we say some pretty awful things sometimes. And, and sometimes we say things that, that we regret now. But I think they're things that made those videos popular, and people enjoyed our candidness. And it's hard to be candid when there are millions of people watching. That's just, it's a you're in a bigger room, and it's, it's more difficult to act the same when you're in a bigger room. So yes, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and in terms of the views, we have people come to stage it sometimes, and they have 15 views on a YouTube video, and they end up making like $50, and sometimes their expectations are different, and they're like, oh, 50 bucks isn't enough for them. But sometimes we'll manage our expectation and say, you have 15 views on YouTube, like where else can you play in the real world and walk away with $50? Right. Um, but is that, do you, I mean, but that's okay, sometimes that just happens. Um, is that what, you know, do you guys sort of feel the pressure that, uh, in terms of the number count, are you seeing artists out there and Dana, people sort of struggling that 5,000 views is enough? 5,000 views is a ton of views. No, that's, that's what Jack and I were saying, is, is, 
you know, a million used to be big, and now everyone's like, I want to, you know, I want 300, I want to be Psy, you know, with 350 million views. 20,000 views is Madison Square Garden. Yeah, but Garden. exactly. I, I think that's the thing to remember. And 5,000 views is great, and 20,000 views is great. And, and, you know, any view that you didn't have yesterday is great, well, okay. you know? And I think, so, it, but it is, it is this, you know, it, it's, it's bleeding a bit with, with, I think, people's expectations and goals. What and, does a view mean on YouTube? Like, how many... How much of the whole video uh, do they have to watch before it counts as a view? Uh oh. Mm, the, the the video has to load in full, I believe. So it's like a full playback. If your mom watches, is that worth 20 views? But it could. Yeah. But if, if if I'm on a fast connection, it'll load very very quickly. But I'm not sure. Right. Wait, say it again. I said if I'm on a fast connection, the video loads very quickly, but you haven't watched it all. I'm just trying to say. I mean, I guess I'm challenging the notion that that 5,000 people. Um, I'm saying it is good, but at the same time, you know, 5,000 people going to a show and listening to you for an hour is a very different yeah, sure. thing than 5,000 people watching, maybe watching a minute of my video. I have a follow-up question for Jack. When you did that uh, video originally, there was no sense of monetization or what the economic model was for that video. And now that you have some assets like that with all of that uh, viewership, uh, is the mental filter for that any different that now you're thinking different ways you can leverage something as opposed to no, there's the same sensibility as when you did that video with no expectations? So uh, we, we tried desperately to separate the artist hat and the, and the business hat because it would be really easy for us to go into the studio at this point and probably make a lot of money. Um, we would just cover all the major pop songs and put out covers records. And we would, I mean, that, that covers, we, we put out Single Ladies with our, our covers album, and it still, to this day, is what's giving us our, our living, is, is that record on iTunes and, and those sales. And um, it's important for us to say, no, we're not a covers band. We write songs and we, you know, we record our own songs and that's what we wanna do. So we'll release a cover every once in a while, but we try, uh, we try to separate being an artist and monetizing our artistic behavior. The, the, the idea would be, I've always thought of it as, as a machine. I want to put songs in this machine that I love. I want to be able to do everything that I like to do and feed this machine songs, and then at the other side of the machine comes dollar bills. And, um, and so, but, but the input of the machine is things that I love to do. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I try not to put on a business hat when I'm on this side of the machine making content. You know, Brett, to your point, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say something that we talked about earlier. I, I know 5,000 views is great, but you, you, can't, you can't deny now when you're on YouTube, and, and maybe we disagree about this, but if I see a video now in, in 2012, I, I, I believe that views have lost their value as, as a currency because in 2012, if I'm going through YouTube and I see a cat video and it has 450,000 views, probably not gonna watch it. But 2008, if a cat video had four, I'd be like, this is gonna be an amazing cat video. I'm gonna send this right. to everybody I know. And now there's like literally thousands of cat videos with over a million views. And I love cat videos. It's not that I don't like cat videos, it's just I don't have time to watch thousands of cat videos. <laughs> right, right, and right. I need to pick which cat, and the way I do this, that one has 10 million views, I'm gonna watch that cat video. But isn't right. that a problem now for artists? Isn't that a, a huge problem for artists now because if I have 400,000 views for my song, you're not gonna watch it? Yes, it's It makes a it much harder problem. for new artists coming in, The market in, is it? oversaturated with content. Interesting. Going back to what you were talking about before, Brett, about uh, the views. Um, one of the things that we always try to do with uh, Stage It, we actually say this, there's no data to prove it whatsoever, but we always say 100 people watching concurrently on Stage It we think is more valuable than tens of thousands of people watching individually. Um, valuable, and valuable in terms of money or valuable in terms of... Of experience. Whatever. Of experience. Um, because it's, it's real-time sharing, it's synchronous viewing. Um, and so in terms of your point about watching, I mean, we watch shows all the time. Uh, if there are 200 people watching Pomplamoose at the beginning on stage, it there are 200 people watching at the end. They, people just do not leave a show because it's interactive. We watch this again and again. We have like a 99.9% retention. Especially if they pay for it. Especially if they pay even 10 cents for it. So we're finding people are staying around watching. Whereas you're right, on a YouTube video, you jump in and out of those experiences. And I, what do you say, but Dana, um, do you have a, any sort of data on um, people who use YouTube like I do, which like a radio station. I pretty much go, I use YouTube all the time. I think it's an unbelievable site for not just video, but for listening to music too. I search, um, do you have any data on how many people actually listen to YouTube versus watch? 
Um, the all of the video, all of the content on YouTube is meant to to consume, right, as a video. So um, we you know we don't split anything into how you're referencing. I think that. Um, the data we do have, though, is that you know there are more and more music lovers coming to the site every month, um, and it's the number one destination to consume music, to discover new music, to share music, um, and that is reassuring, you know, exciting. I think it was just last week Bob Lepsis said something like, you know, YouTube has become the new national public radio um, sure. because there's access, and now with you know the um, now with mobile and. Um, you know the access of connected TVs. You're you're finding that people are are watching more on the go. Um, they're you know they're hooking up their TVs and and watching music that way. And kind of as Jack and I were talking about, you know they're subscribing to their channels and they're watching those videos when they have time. So um, you know we music is at the at the heart of um, YouTube, of YouTube everywhere from you know the size um, crossing global boundaries to you know up and coming musicians finding a home on YouTube. So music is there and. And that's that's the consumption of the video. It, it must be much much harder now for an artist to break through on a site like YouTube than it was in 2008. Is that true? I mean, Jack's nodding. Yeah, Jack. I mean, what what do you think? I the site has has grown obviously, I mean, think, right? And the there point are is, do you lots think the of value partners. Has diminished? What? I think uh, the point I'm trying to make is, do you think the value has diminished to the artists in terms of being on YouTube? And I don't mean gone. I just mean diminished compared to 2009. I don't know, Jack, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I think it has to do with expectation. Um, so, uh, to me, you know, what made YouTube and what makes YouTube so special is, um, is it, it's behind the scenes. Um, it really feels like I get to see something that the mass media doesn't show me. And so when you see an interview you know, with someone that you really like and they're on a street and someone walks up to a microphone and the camera's shaking, you're like, oh my God, I get to see this. And it feels really awesome. And if you're, if you're an artist and you're talking to somebody like you would talk to a person, that's such a different thing than, than seeing your artist, your favorite artist, talk to you on stage as a rock star. And now though, eight years into YouTube, We've seen that, we're used to it. It's not as shocking anymore to see to see the, the transparent person, the real person behind the brand image. That's something that, that we're used to now. So yes, the, the value of it has diminished, I think, slightly just in the shock value of seeing the real person without makeup on. That, you know, that's not as exciting anymore. We've all seen it. And not to make a plug for us, but hey, just got to mind throw it out there. Is that what makes it interesting also? I mean, I got to say it, but Stage It is, is sort of live and interactive with people. It's a different sort of new world where people are actually interacting with you. Yeah. Um, I, plug it, away, baby. Well, <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, the disclaimer here is that um, three months ago, four months ago, our band did our first Stage It show, and Evan, Evan's not paying me, I swear, but... Uh, it it literally after the first show it was like okay this is a this is a, the real thing this is a serious source of revenue for us we're gonna do a show every month or more we're gonna do as many stage shows as we can because at the end of the month we got a paycheck and it and it was big it was bigger than our entire revenue from our last tour so um, it it was a big deal. Um, so I, I like stage it that's the disclaimer. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the nice thing about Stage It is that it, it, it's like a, a new behind the scenes experience that you get to feel special watching. You know, it's, it's not recorded. You can't see it after it's done. It's over. Um, and that feels, that feels special. You can request a song and people, you know, the artists can talk right back to you and say, okay, yeah, we'll play that. Um, and it's kind of, it's that feeling again of getting to see something that not everybody gets to see. We gotta wrap this thing. Go ahead, see your last point. I was just going to ask, you know, for Bonnaroo and Coachella and all those other live streams, a lot of people screen cap what's on the screen and then reshare it over and over again ad nauseum on YouTube. And YouTube sometimes manages to catch them, other times it doesn't. But do you think if that happened for this live experience and removed that scarcity that you're talking about, would it change your opinion towards Stage It? Or is the fact that you're getting paid, you're happy? It's, it's a weird thing. When you treat people like re real people, they, they respect you. We've asked, we've done now five stage at shows. Every time we say, hey guys, this is a live thing. You paid to see this. 
we want to do this for you guys, not for everybody else. We, we would please ask you to not record this on your screens. We know a lot of you have recording software, but we're just asking you as people, please don't do this because we want this to be a special thing. There hasn't been a single uh, pirated <laughs> version of our show anywhere online to watch. That's awesome. The other thing that we do person. to encourage, we encourage artists to be interactive, and you can't interact with the YouTube video. So that's the difference. Challenge, so once people screencast Challenge, it, Evan, you can. You can, you can get somebody on You can interact on the, with a YouTube video. You can totally you, like it. Somebody you can interact with annotations. If you're, you know, if you're a savvy artist, you can reply to comments. I meant There's in real a variety time. Okay, in real ways. time, in real time. Like Jack, someone right now could control what Jack's gonna play next. Oh, have a say. well. That's true. Right, you can I do apologize. that on YouTube you. live stream Guys, as well. uh, no, no, I, I apologize. That's, that's a fair point. <laughs> I just meant in real time. So we have to open up the floor for questions here in a second. Is there a microphone where people are gonna be asking? And in the meantime, there was a panel, I just I wanna ask the panelists one last thing. There was a panel earlier today that talked about predictions for the future. Um, I just thought that I'd give you guys each an opportunity. Um, what's the next thing that's gonna bring artists and fans closer together? And maybe not 50 years out when we're actually sort of reaching through or five years out, whatever it is, but just what do you guys think the next thing coming for artists and fans together? And you're, you can say your own thing if you want. <laughs> uh, well, I obviously hope it is. Uh, no, I think just in general the trend is, you know, Ellie Goulding's making music videos using Instagram and other people are, uh, I think it was Arcade Fire maybe that got photos from, uh, Jason Mraz did this as well, got photos from his fans and put stuff together. So I think this, this idea of collaborative storytelling, you know, how you can involve your fans in creating content that they already love to make them feel more involved and part of it um, is, is going to be a way to bring fans and artists much closer. And I mean, I think Switchcam is intentionally um, Part, like we we are uh, we saw that trend and, and wanted to continue it and move it forward because I think it's a it's a valuable thing. Jack. Oh boy. Um, well, I I think live streaming is going to be huge. Like I said, I I think it's a new piece of pie, and I don't think it takes away from from concerts or um, attending events. I think that's a that's a completely different thing. So, yeah, I I think we're going to see a lot of streaming. In fact, I, my prediction it's a sad prediction but i think it's going to be you know labels have um have started incorporating more and more revenue streams into contracts um and so i you know i think one thing we're going to see is you know stage it in contracts now the label gets x percent of stage it revenue and live streaming events and things like that i, I think that's going to be inevitable that you know once live streaming gets to be a serious um, slice of the pie for everybody, uh, there's going to be a lot of people trying to get a piece of that pie. I'll do a sort of virtual retweet of the first few words. Oh boy, live streaming is going to be huge. Uh, I, I agree with what you just said. And I think that to Evan's comment, this idea, uh, I mean, on-demand content clearly is so uh, ubiquitous, but the opportunity for real-time experiences, uh, and YouTube, of course, is doing YouTube Live as well, uh, I think, it, being that the theme here is from the concert to the couch, yeah, we we agree with that. And interestingly, for us, uh, uh, we're focused in the U.S., but we have uh, clubs uh, around the world. It's interesting that the clubs in uh, overseas uh, markets appreciate this more than clubs in the U.S. markets. The idea that, that yes, I might lose one or two people if I uh, allow someone to experience in real time at a show, even though with live streaming, you can also geo-block a metro area or, or zip codes, and we offer that uh, to our clubs. But uh, the opportunity for these two billion people worldwide, soon to be four billion uh, uh, people with digital connected devices to connect to artists in real time and to connect to other fans. We think uh, so many different ways that people are trying to tap or manage or define that ecosystem, but we think that's gonna be a, a huge opportunity. That goes back to what you said earlier. You know, we started out as communities by uh, si sitting around uh, fires telling stories and then someone started putting music to those stories and we think there's something uh, very uh, indigenous or very central to the human experience that this type of experience plays off of. Yep. Um, so being last means that everybody's taking some good ideas. Um, but I think that it's discovery is something that we've talked a lot about as a theme and I think it's hard for artists to stand out. Um, and so I think that we're just, I think creativity is going to really drive a lot of what we see. I mean, I think um, everything from creativity, you know, Jack, with your videos to what Beck just did, releasing the album in sheet music, 
um, that's it's taking an analog, but it, but it it's it's fueled by this creativity, right? And it's creativity that means something to Beck, because if Katy Perry did that, it would not be the same, right? And so I just think I think this merging of the right creative idea with um, a technology play that works for that artist or musician, I, I think that that's where we're going to see some really exciting stuff. And and I think then for fans to be excited about those risks being taken, brands to be excited about wanting to align with that, and and everybody wanting to work together because you know music's not going anywhere, and it's and it you know one out of three you know young adults going to see shows every every month like that's it's huge. So I think it's a matter of how can all these these folks work together, embrace that creativity, and then the only other the only other element I'd say is mobile too. So I think we're all just demanding what we want when we want it, and I think the frustration of not being able to have a premium experience on your mobile device is, you know, we're all getting impatient with that, and so I think that creative angle with with mobile access is gonna be really important, so. Could I add one thing? Sure. Um, which is just that, uh, you mentioned brands getting excited, and, and this, this is more theoretical, but I think music has such tremendous value to society uh, people love music <laughs> they, they love it whether it's live or recorded or streamed people just love it and and I think we're gonna see a lot of innovation in monetizing music because the monetization scheme for music right now is not so hot and uh, and there are a lot of problems with it and I know that's really broad and you know yeah it's, it's, it's easy to say that, but s somebody needs to come along and, and help distribute value and convert it into money and give it to the right people because that whole, that whole system is just not happening right now, especially, especially for artists. I mean, art, artists have, uh, you know, have notoriously gotten screwed out of you know, a, a lot of money, and, uh, but there are also companies that are bringing a lot of value to the table and I think working one thing you mentioned was brands I mean going back to this old idea of patronage mm -hmm. and brands sharing in a little bit of that band's cool equity by you know hey we'll pay you for this and let's do a really honest sponsorship we'll say the brand at the end this brand paid for that band and now people like this brand because oh my gosh they're funding all my right, favorite they bands That's, they get it that yeah brand people gets get it, it. Yep. and pe people get that when when we do a sponsorship or something like that and I think we're going to start to see brands and corporate America integrated into music better and I think that's going to be a healthy thing I think people are going to start to realize that oh yeah that's helping a lot of people and it's helping artists make money and it's helping more music get spread more widely yep. hey everybody my name is Mike uh, I'm in a band called Radio Nowhere um, got a question kind of for Jack and Evan um, Jack you were talking about um, the intimacy of YouTube a few years ago diminishing as uh, a novelty but then it sort of sounded like you were saying that's present with your experience on Stage It as well. Um, I haven't watched too many Stage It shows, and so I'm wondering whether I read you right that that's a part of your audience's experience that you think is, is valuable to them. And also, Evan, I was wondering if that's something you've seen kind of across the board um, with your experience with people who are doing shows on Stage It. I really apologize. You have to repeat that because I was focused on finding a mic. Just the first part. I heard the last part. I apologize. Unless you want to answer. Uh, well, yeah. I'll just quickly. I, I think the difference is uh, is scarcity, right? And the difference is something that you feel like someone else doesn't get to see that that you get to see, which is why that's really happening on stage right now, right? If if 500 people come to see our show, and we ask people not to record it, well they've just been told basically that only 500 people get to see what they're seeing right now, 500 people. And, um, and that makes you feel like you're in part of a group. And, and uh, yeah, I, I feel like that used to, well, I, I still think it exists on YouTube, it's just to a different extent. I mean, YouTube, there's millions of people watching it and the hit counter's right underneath where, you know, and that, that's not a bad thing, I think it's a great thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of YouTube. But, but it's, it's just a matter of scarcity and, and numbers. It's not so much that you're advocating a certain type of production values. It's more the scarcity that you're talking about, where like a show in your kitchen um, might work just as well as a more produced 
club show with a, with a stage show. It's just the scarcity that's really what's driving that I, sort of special feeling. Jack, can, I can I jump in? Please. Uh, we actually find, to the contrary, I mean, it may work for other people, but we find when there's less production, um, it psychologically takes a user um, into more of like a Skype-like minded experience where they're very comfortable, they're, they know that they're talking to their mom, their cousin, their friend, all of a sudden they have pomplamoose there, it heightens the intimacy. So we often encourage people to use less production. Um, that doesn't mean that, that we haven't seen success with more production, but the less heightens the intimacy uh, and it makes the fans feel like they're a lot closer and more part of the experience because it puts them on the same sort of playing field they're, they're, you're, you're using a laptop, I'm watching on a laptop. It, may, it sort of bridges the gap in a different way. Okay, that's what I was curious about. Thanks, guys. Sure. Let's take one last question. Is that possible? One last question, whoever's got it. I think this guy had his hand up over here. Thanks, Evan. This is for everyone. Do you think this is a, a completely <laughs> new medium, or are there lessons that can be learned from DVD concert videos and Austin City Limits and more recently Access TV? And if so, what are those lessons? It's definitely television. It's definitely video and audio. Um, but I think each of us uh, are trying to uh, deliver a different kind of experience and using a variety of technology tools and a variety of uh, different types of functionality and user experience to, to deliver that. What Evan's doing is extremely unique, and there's a number of different types uh, of experience. So is music new? No. Is audio and video new? No. But I think there are new tools available to allow artists to engage with with users in unique ways. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think I agree. There's a lot that has been learned, I think, from all of those, um, the content that's been created, DVDs, um, you know, tour, tour experiences. But I think, too, that choice is a big piece of the digital component. So on YouTube, you know, you can either watch the whole live weekend or you can go back and search for your favorite clip. And I think choice is also kind of a key component of switch cam and, a, and a, a key component of all these programs. And so it's putting, it's it's layering on that digital choice um, to kind of what is at the core, which is video content, music content that is wildly entertaining and emotional for people. Yeah, well, so. I think what, what's changed a lot is that it used to be very expensive to put out a DVD or, or you know, stream a concert or even put on a large stage show. It's still very expensive to do that. But now we have these tools, you know, in our case, people have camera in their pockets, you know, that people have high-speed internet connections um, that enables YouTube and, and also, you know, stage it. And so the cost of doing these things um, goes down, which means we can do it much more often. And when you can do something much more often, you also need to, you know, lower the production values because it's, it's difficult to create this amazing thing every night, um, you know, day in, day, day out. So I think it's, you know, it, that's the core difference between what we're seeing now and what we what we saw in the past is that you, you can think about it less. Like the video from stage, you don't need to be, you, you know, you, he puts a show on tonight. Or you can do something like on a, on, on a, turn on a dime and get it done. And that's, I think, the massive contrast that we're seeing now, that the internet's enabled and that phones everywhere have enabled and so forth. Okay, and that brings our panel to a close. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our amazing panelists for sharing their expert <laughs> advice. And Thank you. <laughs>